I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So I thought we'd start, well, at a kind of obvious point with Virginia Woolf. She said when she was pointing out how rare it's been historically for women to write fiction at all, that it was necessary to have, and I quote, 500 a year and a room with a lock on the door. People often forget the lock, but that is an important part in order to write. And I wanted to start both with asking both of you where you sort of were in your life and your writing in October 1979, which is when the LRB started, and whether you yet had that room of your own. Now, what was happening in 79 for you? 79, um, I decided to, to stop writing novels. I had a publisher, Tom Mashler, who you all know, and, um, uh, and he was so unenthusiastic about my new book, I decided... I'd write a play instead. So in 1979, I was writing my first play. And you had a space to write? Like you always oh, made, managed to make that yeah, for yourself? I, I tended to write in, the be- in my bedroom because it was my space, my bedroom. And you, you could close the door? No lock? I could close the door. <laughs> um, small faces might peep around it now and again, but yes, yeah. I could close the door. Because you had, you had a, at that point in your life, you'd had your, you'd had your children and mm. yeah, so you had a whole, a full family life as well as... I did have a family life as well, yes, I did. And the change of genre, was that, you've sort of said it's a practical reason, but was that sort of an aesthetic reason as well? Because you always write with voices, like, up the is full of voices, and the poor cow is written in that, you know, in a voice. I do absolutely love dialogue, and I, I find that if I know someone quite well and listen to them talking, I can write in their voice, mm. um, which I find very interesting. And also I love taking from the air other things other people have said and using them. I'm a real user of other people's words. I'm a whatever, whatever you call a magpie. And Tessa, where, what, where were you in your writing life and your life in 79? I, I think I was in the middle of the time when I absolutely wasn't writing, having written as a little girl. Um, I just graduated the year before. I was about to move in with a man. I think I got pregnant in 1979 with my first child. And I was, I had the feeling that there was, I had learned since there was this monumental body of literature and thought and I was just a little ant in relation to it. So I actually wasn't thinking about writing at that time. Possibly there was a sort of Laurentian input into my sense of opting for the body, blood, children, inwardness instead of an intellectual life. I think there was. I think I was hearing lines from The Rainbow and Women in Love and somewhere identifying with Ursula Brangwen when she she looks at the university and she sees through the priests of this false religion and that they aren't the real thing. And I 
I identified and with she that. She wore beautiful coloured stockings. She too. she did. Or is it her sister who wears? No, I think they, they do. No, I think they, they both do. You're absolutely right. The whole of the, the yeah. women in love opens, doesn't it, with the discussion of their stockings, which I would have loved. Now you've reminded me that I used to wear brightly coloured stockings. There you go. There you go. Not yeah. blue. You both didn't wear blue, did you? No, purple. Not, purple. I had some okay. purple ones. Purple and orange and red. Yes. No, blue would be sort of too cliched, I think. So there was a sense of, fuck the academic life, and the real life is in being in love and having children and doing all of that. Was that your sense? With me, yes, I think so. And, and a huge self-doubt that I would have been able to do anything. Yeah. And then when did that start to change? That, that carries on a long time, in a way, <laughs> except that instead what keeps arising is this almost irrational desire to write because I'm a reader always, 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 first, foremost and books make me hungry to do it myself, no matter how much I try and push that down in in those days Mm. so irrepressibly I would start something and then, well, and finish something sometimes, I did write about, I mean in the years to come when the children were small Mm -hmm. and I also wrote in my bedroom like Nell, Mm -hmm. and I've always written in my bedroom and I still do Mm. and at one point I had quite a big house in Cardiff with five bedrooms but I would never have made myself a study because the moment I walked into that study I'd have thought who is this for (laughs) I would have felt as if some imposter or fake were were sitting down in a splendid study on an ergonomic chair so I've always written just beside the bed you're both making me think of um, something Joan Didion says that when she's finished a manuscript she has to sleep in the room with the actual physical book which I've always thought was slightly odd but I quite like this idea of the bedroom being just yeah. a familiar normal place you're in it already why not write one of my when I'm really struggling to write my friend says just take your laptop and bring it in bed with you oh. like that sort of kind yes. of it being normal part of your life right yeah, yeah. it's interesting I'm um, bringing up Lawrence as well I was thinking because Lawrence is He's right there in The Second Sex, which we were talking about earlier. He's right there being attacked in all those early kind of feminist books. He was a kind of a counterexample as well as a fantastic example, right? Who else writes women in that way? Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the women, the other women writers that were important for you or male writers who were a counterexample or um, I suppose Philip Roth has become that sort of thing or the piece we just had by Patricia Lockwood about... How long um, have you got, <laughs> If we could be here all... God, um, now, I'm but joking. now, who, what sort of examples are there? Well, I was talking earlier about Elizabeth Gaskell, mm. North and South, because I think it's an incredible portrait of an inefficient man who sets himself up to be very important, which is the, the vicar. And he sets himself up that everybody has to defer to him. Mm. But actually it turns out when he, something really important happens, like he wants to leave the church, he can't even tell his wife. So I thought that was interesting. And, and Tessa has a vicar in her book, The Past, which I, I think has echoes for me of, of North and South that I thought was interesting. It was 150 years later, about, and it, it's, still ha- it's still happening. However, but in the same book, we get a, an amazing glimpse of the 60s when the grandmother passes the bathroom door, which is a bit open, and sees her daughter naked in the bath with all her children. And that was just so 60s. 
We used to swim our next more naked. Because um, um, we have a very important link, which is where Somerset. No, but that's... I, I love it that you found that in that bit of my book because I think I was trying to do exactly, exactly the juxtaposition that you've described. The stiff male vicar with his classicism. He loves Latin and Greek, and he's trying to sort of pull his daughter Jill back into his orbit. We'll do translations together. Leave your husband. Come back here. Because um, she is thinking of leaving her husband, yes. and he is in some ways a bit of a no-good. But then that glimpse, the, the woman's glimpse through the door, which unsettles the vicar's wife, but at the same time half excites her of yes, all yes. that flesh, that ease with the flesh, which was that revolutionary moment in the 1960s. In your books, Snell, Poor Cow and Up the Junction, I mean, one of the great joyous energies of those books is the pleasure in the flesh. Of, of your girls. That sounds very exciting. <laughs> they are very exciting. They're incredibly exciting. Yeah. Um, what well, should we have you read from from them then? I start by reading a page from Talking to Women. That it was much more about the pleasures of the flesh, probably. Yes, and published by Joe. Talking to Women, people don't know, it's a book of conversations. So Nell interviewed lots of her friends in 1964, we realised. Um, 65, 65, I think. Um, and ask them about exactly the sort of questions I'm asking more of them more badly now, about art and life and writing and um, what, how what, to live, really. Yes, how to live, I yeah. think. How to live, feeling completely lost about how to live. So I thought, well, I'll ask nine friends. And so this is just a bit from one of the friends called Francis. Francis, on a very primitive basis, I can only love one man at a time. If I have any other men, and then I only have them when I'm away from the person I'm in love with, that's usually not purely for sex, but a combination of missing the person I'm in love with and a feeling of freedom and a good time to experiment and discover about other people. And I find in that time I'm extremely responsive to other people, much more than I've ever been in periods when I've not been in love with someone. It's quite extraordinary. I have the most marvellous communication. It sounds terribly corny, but simply being free of any kind of need of them, in fact, being able to be completely objective about them and not needing them for myself in any way. It was absolutely marvellous, with no barriers, no bad things at all. Quite extraordinary. All kinds of different people. I mean, none of them the same as each other. In another way, I think of being in love as rather like a ship that's full of treasure and everybody seems to know it's there and want to have a bit of it and touch it or taste it in some way. And you do notice the effect on other people tremendously. And for me, if I'm on my own, other people know I'm in love with someone else, but it doesn't hinder them in the slightest wanting to be interested in me. So that's a bit of Francis. Before you move on now, we should... <laughs> talk about this extraordinary chronicle talking to women and I mean that it's amazing to have those interviews where you're asking those questions of your friends about how to live and I read it quite recently for the first time and I, I do feel as if the world's changed and the and the tone if you did that book now or if Joe did that book now with nine friends that it would it would be remarkably different what, mm. what do we feel the differences are 
I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. Perhaps people are less open about what was going on. Yes, in their lives. They are incredibly frank, your women. Not, I don't just not just telling what's happening, but in the the they're frank in their lives, open in their lives. Yes, um, open to experience. It feels. But I think this was the important thing that happened in the sixties. Mm. There really was a change of how to live your life. It was much more. Adventurous, mm. I think. Looking back, I mean, we're used to retelling that story and saying, "Yes, the sexual revolution," but actually, in retrospect, it was better for the men and the women. Quite a lot of them had a hard time. But your book—that's simply the evidence that wasn't. If it was so, it was certainly not so for everybody. Your women are using that moment. They're riding it in a way, aren't they? They're experimenting with yes, it, I think, too, yeah. rather bravely often. Yes. But um, I, do want to, I do just want to say about West Somerset, because I feel that we, had an, we don't hardly know each other, but we had an immediate link um, because of West Somerset, <laughs> because of our love for West Somerset. And, uh, that, and that's another... That perhaps it doesn't come out so much in the book, but your sense that... People were go, going back to nature, taking their clothes off, having sex without constraint more, and, and finding something rustic, rural, earthy sounds in a, a bit, natural environment. A bit D.H. Lawrence, now, it the way sounds you're actually, right. when we put it like that, a bit D.H. Lawrence. Another thing that struck me, they don't talk much about current affairs. No. <laughs> I love that. Imagine now That's if you really did that to nine women, it would be all really funny. Trump and Brexit and yeah. this and that. Mm. and let, they, they talk a bit about the bomb with yeah. a kind of fatalism. Yes, but you're right. I hadn't thought of that. And the work. They don't really talk about work no. so much. That doesn't, I mean, artistic work, but they don't talk about what they do all no, day. You're right. you're it's really right. not. And whereas women now, you know, that's the, that's that's something that's really has changed probably in the yes. last forty years yeah. about how much they participate. You know, what work means to career. Them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, I when I think about how women have been represented in fiction by men and women, it does seem as if one of the great rich themes of British and American literature, at any rate, has been that deep, rich sensibility of women. I mean, why did Henry James choose Isabel Archer to be his centre of his book? And, and, and then Lawrence choosing Ursula Brangwen or George Eliot choosing Dorothea Brooke, etc. The development of that deep, rich sensibility which writers reach for to, to go deepest, perhaps, has had to do with them not being so much in the world as men were. That, that there was something about privacy, about not existing inside institutions or frameworks that were given, that women, in the long hours of their days, okay, childcare probably, but we're probably talking about bourgeois women, so they had, had help, help sometimes with their childcare, not not in the sixties generation so much. There was this, there, there was all kinds of deprivation. Women, many women were hungry to get into the workplace, no question. But there was this other thing, this sort of in rich, 
private autonomy of the self. Am I talking nonsense? No, no, you're not. No, you're not. I mean, it it links up with the fact that all the the women in talking to women don't talk about current affairs. No, no, they don't. That that doesn't impinge on them that much. No. No, they're too Talk busy. About their affairs. <laughs> their affairs. They're too busy finding things that are of deep experience for them. Mm. And that's sort of troubling because you're thinking we're leaving the world up to the men, yes. but it's also attractive. Yeah. Yeah. What does it feel like to you, Joe? No, I, I was. Yeah, I, I can. I can see that. In some ways, I was just thinking as you were talking. It's almost like there's certain sort of. I've sometimes thought this with Germans. Um, in a different context, <laughs> as in Germans have done all this work of remembering the war and memorialising it, and the whole like the beautiful Katakowitz, um kind of sculpture on right by the right in the middle of Berlin, Anstein Linden, like, they've done all this amazing work about remembering the war, and it's like lots of other countries around Germany and England are not as good as remembering it. Mm. It's almost like women have been outsourced the kind of rich inner life and not give you know they're given this special role which is double-edged I guess in most cases but I I do see what you mean about that that there's a if you're interested in the inner life if you're a writer who wants to capture the inner Mm. life then who gets more inner life Mm. in the 19th century Mm. it's got to be women and women filling up long long days with sometimes empty hours and of course you can just be trivial and, and a bit brain dead and, yeah. and, and it can make you mad and there's nothing better than the scene in Jane Eyre where Jane marches up and down the third story longing for the world mm. hungry for the world starved because she hasn't got enough yeah. that's that's one mm. half of everything always yeah but there is another part of it too yeah maybe we should just be careful if we throw all that away absolutely if we really all of us end up always at work within those frameworks, within those institutional constraints. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. The I don't know how that gaps are needed, right? Gaps are needed. Yes. Yeah. What about your story? You haven't read yet. I just wanted Tessa to. Well, I'll read a bit, and then <laughs> we will come back to you now. Uh, mine. This is having said all that. This is a, not a scene of that kind at all. This is a sort of piece. I suppose this is a little bit of comedy of sexist comedy or something like that. And this is from quite an early short story of mine called The Enemy, where a middle-aged woman has a dear, old, long-standing middle-aged man friend. They have never been lovers to stay in her house. And in the middle of the evening, well, he goes to sleep first and she sort of tidies up and puts things in the dishwasher and she prowls around and she thought that she, tonight she had her enemy sleeping under her roof. And she thinks that's ridiculous. She's not some kind of Anglo-Saxon thane sharpening her sword and thinking of blood. But however, she's remembering this scene from 40 years before. In May 1968, Caro had turned up for a meeting of the Revolutionary Socialist Student Federation at her university, wearing a new trouser suit, green corduroy bell-bottoms with a flower-patterned jacket lining and Sergeant Pepper-style military buttons. The meeting was to organise participation in a revolutionary festival in London the following month, generating support for the Vietnamese struggle for national liberation. 
The festival was already provoking all kinds of ideological dissent. The Trotskys thought the whole project was reformist. The Communist Party were nervous at the use of the word revolutionary. The young communists were going to appear riding a fleet of white bicycles, which they had collected and were donating to the Vietnamese. And you may laugh at that, but that's, that's from life. <laughs> uh, Caro had brought the trouser suit, had bought the trouser suit because her godmother, whom she had adored as a little girl but had stopped visiting recently because of her views on trade unions and immigration, had sent her £21 for her 21st birthday. She could have put it aside to help eke out the end of her grant, but instead on impulse she had gone shopping and spent it in a trendy boutique in town that she had never dared to go inside before. It was months since she had had any new clothes and she had never possessed anything quite so joyous, so up-to-the-minute and striking as this trouser suit. She knew that it expressed perfectly on the outside the person she wanted to be from within. With her long hair and tall, lean figure, it made her look sexy, defiant, capable. In skirts, she only looked gawky and mannish. The basement was in a base the meeting was in a basement room in the history department as usual. As usual it was mostly men, though there were three or four girls, bright history and politics students, friends of Caro's who came regularly. The girls really did get asked to make the tea and really did make it. They sat at desks arranged in a square under a bleak light bulb with an institutional type glass shade, surrounded by maps on the walls that, of course, were nothing to do with them. Europe after the Congress of Vienna, the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1914 but nonetheless gave the place an air they all rather enjoyed of being a command centre in some essential world-changing operation. <laughs> By the time Caro arrived, the usual thick fog of cigarette smoke was already building up. She smoked too in those days. She was greeted because of the trouser suit with a couple of wolf whistles and everyone looked up. It was complicated to remember truthfully now just how one had felt about that whistling. A decade later, it became obligatory for women to be indignant at it and find it degrading. At the time, however, she would probably have felt without it that her trouser suit had failed of its effect. <laughs> you met the whistle without making eye contact, but with a little warm curl of a, an acknowledging smile, a gleam of response. Two men had come from Agitprop to talk to the meeting about the festival. Agitprop was a loose association of activists and artists named after Trotsky's propaganda train and dedicated to promoting revolutionary messages through aesthetic means. That was how Caro met Keith Reed for the first time. He is her guest in the present of the story. When she arrived, he had already taken his place in a chair at the very centre of things, commanding the whole room. Keith was a very attractive man. It was the first thing you needed to know about him to get any idea of who he was then. Not handsome, exactly. Off-center, quirky features held together by a fluid energy, fragile, hollow, hooked nose, sorry, fragile, hooked nose, hollow cheeks, a lean, loose, strong body, a shoulder-length mess of slightly greasy, dark curls. He had a Welsh accent. It was a Valley's accent, in fact. He was from Cumbach near Aberdeer, but in those days, Caro had never been to Wales and couldn't tell one accent from another. At a time when left politics was saturated in the romance of the workers, this accent was in itself enough to melt most of the women and the men. He looked at Caro in her trouser suit. Don't you find, he said, that dressing up like that puts off the working classes? <laughs> That didn't obviously happen to me. It was slightly before my time, but it was reported. I found that somewhere, that little gem. <laughs> it's funny how the, the clothes should be 
sort of the, the linchpin of that, mm. because we started talking about the kind of stockings and thinking about the, these, how women are seen and literally how they were seen, like how they're marked out as different. I mean, a woman at uh, those Marxist meeting would have been different perhaps anyway, but then to be wearing this thing, mm. it's sort of extraordinary. I, th- I think that was part of it. As we were saying that um, um, young women, <laughs> when I was a young woman, wore suspenders and stockings mm. and skirts. And um, I never found that comfortable, really. And then suddenly in the 60s, people wore black sweaters and jeans and quoted Camus, what I actually said, but whoever. <laughs> in French, no, in English. Yeah, no, they were often in French. Yeah. And, um, or Sartre in French, you know, it was quite a French... It was quite a French movement, wasn't there, coming up? And it, the black sweater and the, the, black the sweater Galois. And the Galois, wonderful. <laughs> but I know. <laughs> smell of coffee and... Yes. Yeah. But also a certain sort of freedom, as in... Yes. Throwing away that... Yes, throwing away that prim. Yeah, I suppose belt. getting rid of the primness. Yeah. Um, that was sort of instilled in young women by their parents, mm. probably. Yes. Um, Alice Munro writes brilliantly about how you're, you're told to... Regard your body as if it's full of treachery. Yeah. It's going to let you down at every point. It has to be girded in, and then suddenly yeah. jeans and a black jumper and yeah. a bit of camu. It's bliss. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did want to talk to you about is um, just this notion of whether you ended up calling yourselves a feminist or not, because that that became controversial for my generation. That you. It was sort of Spice Girls and girl power, and that wasn't really a thing. But the kind of feminist stuff was well, you were sort of yes. not supposed to. I think feminist to me just meant equality. Yeah, and and, and there I was had no, no problem with saying no problem, no, because I knew just what it meant. Yeah, and um, and even then, it, it, we hadn't won the war. You know, there was a lot yeah. to fight for. Yeah, mm. yeah. The aim was to achieve complete. Equality. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I also, these days, would just kind of take it for granted that I was a feminist, although that seems to me, you know, wonderfully loose net, as it should be, which will yeah. contain multitudes yeah. of, of different attitudes and um, beliefs, if you like. And for your... Sure, sorry, Joe, I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm not sure I was, actually, in 1979. I, I've got a feeling... That slightly to my shame, I'm, I'm not particularly proud of it. I've got a feeling I was slightly Laurentian <laughs> about it, I think. And a little bit, I, I think I might have found feminists slightly tedious or that, not even that, maybe just wrong. And I'm, I I'm don't. shocked. <laughs> I know, I'm shocked too, but I'm being honest. I'm being honest. Yeah. Do you mean sort of single note or? Well, I can remember when I briefly taught in school, very briefly. I can remember the maths teacher and I, who was a much better feminist than me, having an argument about whether it should be, you know, the ascent of man. Do you see what I mean? Instead of the ascent of people and me Mm. saying she was being pedantic. Now I understand. (laughs) In your fiction, was there any political engagement? Was that important (laughs) that you were involved in sort of feminist struggle through what you wrote? Is that or did that not? Cross your that, mind. that comes in a bit to, to my play Steaming. Yeah. Because she, she can't get a job and um, eventually a man 
says he's going to give her a job, she's got to lie down on this towel and have sex with him. And that's in steaming. And there's quite a lot of that kind of thing in steaming. Yeah. And I mean, every, every sentence you write now is feminist struggle yeah. in one sense, isn't oh, oh, it? That pleases me. Yes. <laughs> that pleases yeah. me. But that wasn't something that you thought, oh, I need to make an example because you think really. of when um, Up the Junction was, of course, such a fuss with the abortion scene when it was on, on the BBC. Yes. I mean, sure, you've really changed what was possible to say about abortion and women's. Or, um, but it just was natural. It was just what people were talking about, and so you wrote it down. I think it was happening. I mean, every yeah. other street had a backstreet abortionist in those days. And what was so disgraceful was there was a family planning clinic all kind of beautiful brass things, family planning clinic. And you could only go there if you were married. Mm-hmm. I mean, just so ironic, isn't it? I mean, yeah. how crazy. Can you... That had changed <laughs> ten years later. That's interesting, isn't yes. it? That's not my memory. Those brook clinics you could go to yes. as a girl. That's interesting. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And, and they were all over the place, Backstreet abortions. I mean, it's just, just appalling. I mean, there's a whole ward in the local hospital, which was Battersea Hospital, which now doesn't exist anymore, um, for, for, for women who'd had Backstreet abortions mm. and were extremely ill and would probably never be able to have a child. Mm. I mean, it's absolutely appalling. Mm. And that was all that purience or primness or something. Yeah. Yeah. That you're wicked and you go into that ward and the sister was always known to be completely horrible to you. Because mm. she was punishing you. You're punishing you. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that that's within your memory I find astonishing because, yeah. you know, it's not, I've yeah. never been like that. I've never even had to think about that. Yeah. That I might have to fake being married or... or When I first, when I had my first child, I wasn't married. And when I went to the hospital to have the baby, I said... That my name was Tessa Nichols, and they put Mrs. Nichols. And I said, "Well, actually, no, I'm not married." And she, she then said, "Oh, I think that will be uncomfortable. I think we should say you're Mrs. Hadley." Oh, so I was Mrs. Hadley. Yeah, yes. So that's a, a lesser thing, but it's yeah. still it was it, low status not being married. Yes, yes. Although not among my not among my people, no, yeah. it was quite normal, and yet it was that there was a lag between kind of young. Fashion. I don't know what young, educated people, I suppose, and the the world of hospitals outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, one of the things that happens if you just live long enough is that you realise <laughs> how fast and totally the world changes its skin yes, over it's and over. It, and suddenly, yeah. I mean, my husband can remember growing up. This is sorry, I'm going off track, but I'll be one second. <laughs> growing up in Birmingham in a house with an outside toilet and no bath and bathing in front of the fire. And now we, we went to the folk museum. No one has a terrace house set up like that. That was his childhood. Yes. No, no, you can see it much more clearly in something like women's rights, the idea that mm. I can be sitting with Nell and she can remember that. And I, mm. yeah, it's extraordinary, really. Yeah. I wanted to bring us onto a sort of the struggle within the literary world, really. So the LRB is legitimately criticised for publishing not enough women's voices, especially women of colour, and basically taking part in an underrepresentation of women that is across the arts, the media, universities, politics, the whole world. <laughs> what would you two say to this? Is it something that you've seen change, get slightly better, get slightly worse, that you, you felt you've suffered from it as women writers, that people haven't wanted to take you seriously at times? And 
because you know in the literary world as I started it it has always been unusual for women to write or women to be taken seriously as writers it hasn't really you know do you know there have been even in the 18th century there were actually more women novelists publishing novels than men but it's the men we remember and I'm not you know perhaps rightly so in the Mm. 19th century there's not even a problem dominated by by great women writers Elliot and Brontes and all this yeah. That isn't true in mainland Europe at all, but it's certainly true in Britain yeah. and America. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, but and yet I'm not in, the, in a, for a moment denying that you're you're talking about something no, real. No, it's real. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe yeah. what you're talking about belongs more with criticism, with the intellectual life, the secondary work Mm-mm-mm. of the intellect and critique, rather than with fiction. And there've even been moments when there's almost a sense as if. Well, fiction is making it up, and it's kind of for women and children. Men, <laughs> yeah, to that. Yes, yeah. yes. Do you recognise that? I do recognise that. Yes. But I thought your work was taken seriously when it was published, right? You didn't feel yes, no, I didn't they were feel patronised, or it, it, it did take me um, seven or eight years to get anything published, or sending things in. Yeah, but perhaps that's normal. That's fine. Um, How did you keep going with that? I was married, had children, had an income, kept going. <laughs> That's another forgotten bit of the story, of course. Me too. <laughs> I, I, I went on writing through lots of failure, which was my failure, not writing well, because my husband was earning a living and I was yeah. harder for a man. Yes. <laughs> what did we just say? <laughs> <laughs> Another brilliant bit of Alice Munro. I keep that she's just she gets this history like no one. Yeah. Is where I'm going to forget what the story, it's Cortez Island, short story, long short story, and it begins with young marrieds, and she writes so sympathetically about the young. The two of them have got together essentially to have sex because they couldn't do it without being married. Mm. He then has to take on this great burden of dullness, going to work from nine to five, the mortgage, the children that will come, the responsibility. Mm. She stays at home all day like a mad woman, scribbling things in a notebook and screwing them up and throwing them away and writing more things. She writes so funnily about that with such sympathy in a way. Again, this is about the funny, furtive autonomy that women have been able to importantly scrabble together inside the injustice of them not being allowed out in the workplace. Yeah, 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 exactly. That The kind of public world is mm. not open to them in the, quite mm. the way they... So they... Mm. Yeah, one, yeah, one could say that. I wanted to open it up to the floor if there were questions that you wanted. You don't have to rush in. You might not immediately have one. I've got a few more things to ask Nell and Tessa in the meantime. Talking about that interior life of I found when I had children that, you know, I was horrified by the fact that I had to stay at home all the time and it was completely lonely and all the rest of it. And my aunt um, had a theory who's probably, I would say, of in between your generations, that, you know, say, oh, all you, you know, all you, um, my nieces, and, you, you know, you all complain about it. And, and we never complained about it because you've had, you've all had your children later and you've had such a nice life and you've been going to the theatre and exhibitions and working and having such a fun time and then you had your children and you're stuck at home. Whereas 
we went into having our children straight away. We sort of came out of school and had our, got married at 23 and had our children. And so we didn't know. Ignorance is and I, You know, so I, I wonder if that's something that's changed and that now people are... The kind of thing of having it all, people are, are, are trying to express that interior life at the same time as having everything else going on, like being at work all the time and, you know, being in this kind of super fast system. I wonder if that... Uh, it's completely not a question I just realised. No, but it's a, really, it's a really interesting thought. And one response to it, of course, there are no answers, but one response is that we certainly haven't seen yet that that emotional work and interiority that perhaps I'm half saying women developed through not quite belonging to the public in the way men did. But it was a huge generalisation because lots of women always did work. Um, but that, that has... Even my, my wonderful daughters-in-law, who actually are working full-time brilliantly... But they actually still do the other part, the sort of imagining and feeling and talking and making everybody all right and passing on the gossip work as well, which is a little bit of what you're saying. That's not quite what you were saying. But it is a thought that whatever has been developed over the evolution of the last few centuries in our British cultural life as a differential between the sexes. Of course, we're not going to eliminate those qualities simply by a few external shifts and shoves and changes that we will still go on following patterns of womanhood and patterns of manhood, very approximately and with huge spectrums as to how those get expressed, of course. Um, but that those things endure long past, if you like, maybe the, the original conditions that caused them. Now, did you ever think you were going to have it all? Because you're right about in talking to women, the women and there's only one that's over 30 and they all have children or are married already. Um, this is 65 and 64, 65, and that wouldn't be the case with my peers at the same age and younger. Did you think you were going to well, have, going to have children and be a writer? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Have fun. I'm not sure about the fun, <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly thought I was going to be a writer and I was going to have children. Yeah, and you didn't think that would be an impossible thing to be no. able to do this? No, never. And have a friends and go out and. I didn't have friends and go out much, funny enough. <laughs> it took me a long time to understand how to make friends. What was wrong there now? What was wrong? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Joe. You're terribly want... charming. What happened? <laughs> I just wasn't good at it. I definitely wasn't. Mm. I collected my children from school. There was a sort of back gate at the end of the school yard, and I used to go there. Mm. Because it, it seemed too difficult to take on. Do you know the schoolyard is so difficult? It is weirdly. I can remember days when I could hardly bear to go to. Don't know what that's about. No, I, I haven't got children, but I've been watching Motherland, and that, all of that, that happens mm. on yes. the front gate, and it does look vicious. Yes, <laughs> I mean sure. hilariously vicious, but yes. vicious. I admire your book on Henry James very much. <laughs> And I was rocked when you began to talk about Lawrence as your initial influence. But listening to you, and over the past hour, I have come to terms with the compromise <laughs> I have. 
But I would like to ask a big floppy question about the continuing. I feel that Henry James's sensibility and his work is alive in your own work. The story that you read seems to me like a rewrite of The Beast in the Jungle from May's point of view. Not. And that, you know, Henry James lives in your work. So as a big question, a big open question, would you talk a little bit about... You know, how you still feel about him and whether he oh, is... Oh, just absolutely love him as much as I ever did. And the reason I wrote a book about him, I, was, I needed to do a PhD at the time because I was failing catastrophically in my writing. In my late 30s, I'd written four novels or something, I've even forgotten, that were hideous and they were rejected by publishers, didn't even know anything about publishing. And I just thought, I'm going to be so miserable... And I, why don't I do this other thing I can do, which is much easier, which, which was reading and being a critic, which slightly contradicts something I was saying earlier, doesn't it? Because I, uh, because I really think that creative work, writing fiction, making characters out of the primal mud and starting them off is the hardest thing of all, much harder than critique and, if you like, second-order intellectual thinking. Um, so I wrote a book about James because I thought if I do a PhD on him at the end of three years, I will still love the books, and I absolutely still do. And uh, James is a great thinker about all these questions we're talking about tonight. He himself was not... He, he was a little bit intolerant of lots of the women novelists who adored him, I, I, you know, not necessarily personally, although that too... Willa Cather sent him her work, didn't she? And he was very dismissive about that, blind to that. But that's... Writers are often blind to other writers. He, in his novels, nobody could write with more insight about womanhood, what it was, what it was like to be a clever woman, how you work that in with love affairs, loving men. No, he's a marvellous writer about all those things. Do you know, I think one of the reasons I wrote really badly for a long time was because I was too saturated in the past. I never regret that. And it's still at the bottom of my sensibility and my soul. But I actually was almost writing for a 19th century audience, and that is no good. And I needed to find those great contemporary writers, actually Munro, um, Nadine Gordimer, Curtsy, that, that may be able to write. There's, you can't learn from Tolstoy how to write for your own age. And if you try, it sounds awful. So yes, of course I'm. James is in every sentence, and yet, and yet not. Also, what about you, Nell? Who who are the great influences? Do you think on you? Well, probably D. H. Lawrence. Yeah. Um, but I read all the Russians because I was sent to school in Italy, and I didn't speak Italian. But I was sent with a parcel of Russian classics. <laughs> That's a lovely story. <laughs> so they became my friends. Um, that and a, a very old nun who was in her 80s and, uh, she was English, she was an English nun and she took pity on me and she used to take me along to the nun's bathroom so I could have a bath because all the Italian girls had showers and I couldn't handle a shower so, <laughs> and she took me under her wing and, but I read all the time I think I read through loneliness because yes. I didn't have friends like in Motherland <laughs> so books were my friends. Yeah, books were my friends. I had I had two very close little girl friends, but books are one's friends, one can, one's companions. Yeah. 
one's yeah. escape, but not not in the weak sense of escapism, in the in the grand sense that it takes you out of one small life into the world. Yeah, maybe yeah. that sense of loneliness if you don't know the sort of people that. My friends at school might have been into My Little Ponies or dancing or whatever, but not many people were perhaps into the other, you know, the books that I liked. And so you, yeah. in a book, you yeah. can actually be with a different sort of woman that you yeah. not necessarily come across in life, right? Yeah, yeah, so did you find that lonely, not having people who love books? Well, yeah, but as you say, that the loneliness is solved by reading. So yes. it's sort yes. of a, it can be like a, in the books. Yeah. Yes. a reinforcing thing, yeah. right, that you... I mean, actually, of course, novels are mostly written by slightly odd, <laughs> marginal people with not many friends. And they're in them, funnily enough, they find more odd, marginal people yeah. with not many friends. We yeah. end up as a great crowd. Yeah. yeah, yeah, quite. No, I can remember the complete highs, moments of reading Lowry, Mexico. Um, yes. What's it called? Uh, Under, Under the, volcano. the Volcano. Thank you. You're just being absolutely carried away in some kind of real ecstasy. Yeah. And, that and Colette, actually, who you and talked Colette, about right. earlier, Colette. she was one for me, yes. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering, on the topic of women and Henry James, he uses this really fascinating metaphor of the cage, and his novella in the cage, and I was wondering how that resonated with you and your interpretation of women in modern life and in your, in your literature. I don't know, because you can hear in what we've been talking about so far a sort of real struggle, in me anyway, between feeling... S- discomforts and constraint at one's femininity, one's femaleness, stopping one being something. And yet at the same time, I don't know. It it also enabled... I mean, do you know, I think In the Cage is much more about class than it is about womanhood. Uh, It's a marvellous story, I think. And I, I kind of think the cage of that young woman is about her tiny social opportunity, tapping out the telegrams between the lucky ones with their love affairs. Um, I was just wondering if that, if you think that all writers then can relate to that, maybe it's sort of an escapism in writing, sort of breaking out of the cage of the banality of modern, modern life? Is that there's always an escapism in writing. That's sort of, yes, that's, that's sort of what we're saying, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. I'd say there's always an escapism. And, and escapism not in the... I mean, obviously there's one kind of escapism if you read romantic fiction that delivers sort of saccharine, easy solutions. But there's another kind of escapism if you read the hardest things there are which don't make life easier, but the joy of seeing... Life written down, chronicled, yes. the truth told. Yes, it is a great escape in the in the best, strongest sense of the word, and has been for women um, who have been the great consumers of novels, as well as writing them. Yeah, for those reasons, and and they were seen. Sorry, sorry, they were seen in the eighteenth century. There were lots of tracts against novels because they were so dangerous, and young women were going to read them. They're often written about as if they were like masturbation. You know, there'll be people will be consuming them in their bedrooms alone, and their sensibilities will be excited. But that, and it was because women who had been starved in their cages as it were, um, could, through novels, imagine otherness, imagine themselves differently. I'd be interested to hear your opinions on um, contemporary female novelists and the way they are representing women, how that may have changed 
since some of the examples you've been discussing tonight? Partly because we're in the thick of it, aren't we? So I can't see the wood for the trees. Just like everybody else, I really liked reading Sally Rooney. And I really thought I was reading something that was at once familiar, not alien, and yet new. I felt there was something that had jettisoned a lot of burdens. And, uh, yeah, so that was a good, fresh sensibility like that. And I know there are others, and me too. My, my mind is... I'm probably not going to be able to summon them, and yet I know they're there. And your shelves are full of them. And my shelves are full of them. And they're piled up by my yeah, desk. Yeah. And piled up by your bed. And yeah. I, I mean, I am a, I'm a great re-reader, actually, and a bit lazy about contemporary, despite what I just... I, I read it when eventually the moment arrives. But I do lots of rereading, not not... Not the 19th century alone, but, you know, the 1970s and the 1960s and the 1990s. And it's quite nice things just come or they don't come. Yes, yes. Appear. I've yes. given a, J- a Japanese book called The Convenience Store, Store Woman, which I think is absolutely wonderful. Oh, I've heard of that, but I Little haven't read it. Little, narrow, small book translated from the Japanese. Just brilliant. Mm. Mm. And that's just come my way. and I'm, I'm delighted. So, I love that serendipity, yes. Yeah, so what comes my way, yeah. I'll embrace, but I, I don't... How did that come your way? The Japanese book. Yeah. A friend said, Nell, you'll love this. <laughs> the best way. Yeah, and I do. I did, I do. In the way I read it at the beginning of the year, it fits quite well with what um, the question about Cage is almost. She's always being told what sort of person she is, or ought to be, and the way she interacts with that is quite a it's quite a fun thing that she does when you write um Nell and Tessa are there certain frustrations you've come up against again and again perhaps something you've always wanted to do in literature and still still want to get there one day or or a part of it that you find harder sort of structurally or dialogue as opposed to plot or something more specific than plot is there something you're still sort of battling I think I think writing is very hard and is a struggle and you do constantly battle. But there is a, a huge feeling of... It is a wonderful feeling when suddenly you can solve a problem and it, it comes clear how to, how to do this bit. It's a huge pleasure. And so it's probably 90% struggling and then this huge pleasure of... I'm not sure if that answers your question. Do you mean because you're trying to make something happen... That, in the plot, or you're just yeah. trying to explain Yes, or, or you're trying to make a character alive, which is somehow not, won't come alive, and then suddenly you see a way through. I'm just thinking of one particular one, and the, and the way through was actually having letters from her friend. Right. You know, so it was suddenly... Sort of it suddenly, it was... came clearer and more alive. Yeah. Sometimes just not knowing what's going to happen. Yes. Something, something needs to happen to, to make this yeah. character clearer or to make this relationship change. But you, you know the thing has to be there, but you don't know what it is. Yeah. You have to sort of wait and then quite when patiently. It happens, it's wonderful. When, when, it, when it, it comes to you, it's wonderful, yeah. And I always, I, I kind of, perhaps foolishly, maybe I should stop, but I always want to write slightly more 
politics in my books, and I actually think that it's really hard to write politics into the novel in the sense of, let's say, climate change. How do you? Yeah, what? How can you do that? You it's going to sound so clunky. You don't need to yeah, preach to anybody about anything. How are you going to write that thing that's yeah. in all our lives? Everybody here today feeling some little pressure of it at some point during mm. their day. How are you going to put that in? I was, and I think the only bit of politics I can think of that writes like a dream into the long, deep traditions of the novel is gender politics, actually. Right. That it's been good at that because, because it's... Reveal it. Because you can reveal it because it's between men and women in scenes, in interactions, and it's been a great theme of the novel. Mm. From whichever angle, it's done since its beginning since its beginnings really since Clarissa in the English novel yeah your books do have they're the opposite of clunky they do have that lightness of touch are you quite conscious of maintaining that so nothing feels too sort of pushed upon the reader well that's what when you're doing the difficult thing like Nell you're just sitting there reading and rereading what you've just written and then thinking I so want to make that point or have that but it's ugly Yes. That's what's really a bit of a revelation to me, it's sort of into my second or third book. I, I suddenly thought with clarity, I thought, all these stylistic adjustments I'm making to style, I don't like that aesthetically, this is ugly, that's better. They turn out to have a kind of ethical content. They're all about getting the truth right or failing to, being fair to your characters, leaving judgment open or closing it down in an ugly way. And it's funny that aesthetics in a book and truthfulness in a book mm. or the ethics of a book turn out to be pretty inseparable, well, there, is, there is a sort of magic quality which, which it either works or it doesn't work. Mm. And you don't quite know what that is. Yeah. Uh, that's what yeah. I find in writing a book. The, it, it, the, the, the match that lights it yes. is a complete mystery. Yes, you can think in advance, yeah. I will write it like that, it will yeah. be great, that's what I want to say. And as you write those sentences, it's wrong, and yeah. then you do it again, and the match strikes. Yes. And it works. And it works, yeah. yes. Um, I think that's a very nice moment to end on. And thank both of you, Nell and Tessa, for being with us today. Thanks. Thank you.